Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who played 15 years in the National Hockey League from 1980 to 1995 with the Quebec Nordiques, New Jersey Devils, and St. Louis Blues. He's the second highest leading scorer of the 1980s, trailing only the great one Wayne Gretzky. He was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1998, ranks 34th all-time in NHL points, he, along with his brothers, Marion and Anton, became one of the most exciting and successful scoring lines in the National Hockey League. They blazed a trail to the NHL for many European hockey players, especially from the Eastern Bloc. In 2017, he was named one of the 100 greatest NHL hockey players of all time. His son, Jan, played five years in the NHL. His other son, Paul, believe it or not, is now in his 15th year in the NHL with the Winnipeg Jets. It is a thrill to welcome... Hall of Famer Peter Stashny to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Peter. How you doing? Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you for a beautiful introduction. Doing great in uh, lockdown, uh, COVID lockdown, hard lockdown, Bratislava, Slovakia. Unbelievable. These times are, are very strange. But you know what? Your story is not the prototypical pro athlete story. Many of us here in the United States remember a 1984 movie called Red Dawn. It, it featured Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen. And the premise of that movie was that the United States is invaded by the Soviet Union. Well, that is real life for you. In 1968, you're 11 years old when the Soviet Union invades Czechoslovakia. What do you remember uh, about that summer in, in 1968? Oh, I think I remember a lot. Uh, I was a young kid, but uh, you know, I was cheering. whole country was very, very united. The whole country was kind of traumatized. Because when your country all of a sudden, overnight, overnight, middle of the night, they started probably after midnight and you wake up in the morning and there is, you know, plane, military plane landing, flying over, tanks coming from the southeast, north, from everywhere. Uh, and, and uh, you know, rumbling, roaring and, and the people panicking and you've got radio, television and, you know, live television, you know, they're getting kind of, uh, you know, occupied and then cut off the air, you know while live television broadcast was on, it, it, it was horrifying. There were students protesting. There were, you know, there were shots fired, a lot of shots fired. A lot of young people died. And uh, so you, you remember it. That's the trauma for the rest of your life. And, and, and gross, gross injustice, especially that, you know, we knew that the, the, the communism is a, is a horrible, uh, you know, kind of criminal regime. And, and, uh, and they just, you know, we had a you know, ray of hope at the time the finally changing, there was uh, Mr. Dubček, also Slovak, who tried to introduce socialism with human face, and uh, people in Kremlin didn't like it. So they sent uh, tanks and military from every corner, you know, surrounding Czechoslovakia at the time, and uh, and then put a very uh, quick stop to it, and uh, there we were. Uh, that, that, that's something you'll never forget. That's, that, as close as you get to the real war, the same thing happened in '56 in Budapest, in, in, in Hungary, and, and you just don't want to experience ever again. And hopefully, uh, by now, 
even I, you know, participated a little bit as a, as, as a person, as a member of the European Parliament. It was my dream to get the Slovakia into EU, European Union, which is guaranteed and fortified and forever. You know, we will live in peace, with prosperity and, and, and security. And uh, you have the force of, uh, you know, the, the strongest military in the world protecting you and guaranteeing you freedom. So feels good, pretty good right now. So it's interesting because, you know, here in 1980, when the U.S. Olympic team beat Russia, obviously we're in the middle of the Cold War. It meant so much to us. I have to imagine that being part of the Czech teams that upset the Russians and won the world championships in 1976 and 77 gave you great satisfaction. Were those games very emotional for you, given the history of what you experienced as an 11-year-old? Mark, more than emotional. I was so motivated, even the hate. I just hated the uh, Russian Soviets, and, and later on they became the best friends because I learned very quickly. It's not the people; they wonderful people, but regime is uh, evil. But you know, at the time, young men, you don't know much. So I, I play with so much emotion, so much inspiration. I think I'm the only athlete in the you know from my former country that has a successful uh, kind of records against Soviets because they were dominating the world absolutely. But I played four world championship. Yeah. Twice I finish first, twice second. So I cannot be, nobody can any better. You can maybe even it, but not better. We beat them in Canada Cup 76. Uh, we uh, beat them, you know, I won the Izvestia tournament, uh, NHL tour. They were touring, they beat everybody. They lost to Nordiques. Believe me, I was like, almost like one man force. I, I wouldn't <laughs> allow them to beat us. Like, uh, I got two times I played them. One time we tied them, one time we beat them like 5-1 or something. And we were up 5-0, they scored one goal last minute of the game. So I, I'm, I'm very, very proud. And a big chunk of the reason is that uh, I was always inspired. I was like, I was like a, like a, like a, you know, tiger, you know, getting out of a cage or something. Just, uh, I, I really, there was no lack of motivation and inspiration because of the, of, of the August 1968. So let's talk a little about the 1980 Olympics. The Olympic group play, the Americans having earned a dramatic 2-2 tie against Sweden, they scored with 27 seconds left after pulling Jim Craig for an extra attacker. They then follow that up with a game against you in which they pull off a stunning victory. They win 7-3 to three over you guys who were probably favored for the silver medal. What were your impressions of that USA team, those young kids, when you faced them? Don't, don't even remind me. I'm still, I'm still emotional <laughs> about this and, and I'm very unhappy because you know, Americans those days, they were like nobody. They were like a college student. And, and you know that, like they lost in Madison Square Garden a few days before to Soviet Union or something like 11-1 or something. Just they got double digits and they got steamrolled. We played them. We were the, one of our favorites because what I told you, in the last four years, we were two-time world champions, two-time silver. So we came to the Olympics in Lake Placid as one of the with Soviet Union as, as a number one, two favorites to win the gold. And then we, got, we played against these students and they were running, like, like I told you, me, uh, like a tiger getting out of a cage. There was like whole 20 players, like running. I couldn't believe it. I said, what is, you know, what, what's happening? We play, we play our best, but I mean, they put us in shame. I, I, I just couldn't believe what happened. But at least one, one kind of satisfaction at the end was that they win it overall. So, but unfortunately, they cut our, our, our uh, you know, uh, road uh, you know, to, for the medal. Very early on, we didn't succeed against Sweden. Sweden was always traditionally a very strong team. 
So, uh, you know, we ended up, I think we ended up fifth or something, uh, you know, playing and, uh, you know, we end up cheering up for Americans, especially when they, when they play Soviet Union at the time, because you remember the era, it was like the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. It was tough times, tough times for Americans. That's why it's so memorable that the team sport like hockey, you know, you know, confronted, uh, you know, other, you know, there were two world powers, superpowers meeting on the ice. Whole world was watching, and there were this bunch of students led by you know Brooksy. Uh, he later became my coach in New Jersey, uh, Herb Brooks, and uh, and you know just day one and it, it was memorable. I still you know I, I got to play. I've, I've been to about six Olympics, twice as a player, twice as a GM, and twice as a parent. Every time mm. I get to meet Mike Ruzione, <laughs> we always kind of. Uh, you know, bring the memories back and it's a lot, a lot of fun. But uh, as I said, that, that was bittersweet. Bitter because we got beat by the students, but very sweet at the end when they won it all. Because it was a very similar to 1972 series when Canada played Soviet Union. I was like, I, I almost died because Russians were so good. And, and, and Canadians, like never before, they put the best team, the first time ever, and they were just awful. They, they didn't play well. But at the end, when they won, when, when Paul Henderson scored the winning goal, Phil Esposito was my hero, and all these guys, like, I was so happy. There was a, two very important moments in the history of the, of the ice hockey, from my perspective. So, once again, a, a moment of significance happens to you in August. Uh, this time, it's during a European club tournament in Innsbruck, Austria, a little after the Olympics in 1980. You head out for a walk in search of a payphone. Uh, your pockets are filled with Austrian uh, shillings to pay for a long-distance call. That's right, yeah. Tell us about that call and what transpired over the course of that tournament. Mark, this is, this is stuff for the book. I wrote the book that was a bestseller at the time, and uh, <laughs> you, you devote the whole chapter to it. I cannot even... But the simple thing was, uh, you know, I didn't know. I just, I, I just I figured I called Quebec Nordic because they were one of the team interested in us. There were many, many teams. I got the NHL book, NHL yearbook. So this was all these teams, all their addresses, all their phone numbers. So if they wouldn't pick up, I would call somebody else. But they picked up, and I asked. I, I didn't know their role. I asked for a GM. He wasn't there. So I asked other, other you know, kind of hockey. I didn't want to call to president because usually these are the administrators. I wanted to talk to hockey men. So in the next in the list was like a head of a hockey kind of operations. It was Jules Leger. He picked up. And I could not believe like uh, their reaction. They, they thought there was, there was a, there was a second, second coming, uh, you know, something really, really special. And they were basically there within a few hours. How do you get there? I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. It was in the afternoon, uh, you know, late afternoon. And then yeah, I went to sleep. And next morning I got a phone call very early morning. There were people from Quebec Nordiques. They were across in different hotels already in Innsbruck. I mean, what they've done, I, I still don't know, but uh, it, it, it was, uh, you know, unprecedented. And uh, then the big drama became uh, started because, you know, we needed to move to, to Vienna. From Vienna, somehow, we needed to go move from Austria to North America, which should be safe, except Austria those days it was like a spine of it. That was packed. It was Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of Soviet communist spies in Austria, especially in Vienna. So, you, and there were a lot of kidnapping, a lot of stuff happened. So, I, I, I genuinely worried. 
uh, and I, I really kind of relaxed once we were sitting in the plane, uh, you know, leaving uh, Amsterdam, heading heading to Montreal. But before that, you know, we had to go to to Vienna, and uh, and uh, and we were warned, and, and they, then then they got the protection. And they were like a special commando. They were like a couple dozens of uh, heavily heavily armed with machine gun, not machine gun hanging behind their back, machine gun in two hands, ready to shoot. And they were, you know, getting us, guiding us through, through, you know, very busy Vienna. There was a morning working day. I think it was Monday morning. Uh, and, and we needed to go to the Canada embassy, get some paperwork. And then they, you know, catch the plane. And we, I just remember driving and these guys, uh, you know, Leger, some other guys, they were, they were, they were tossing the hundred dollar bills every time they did some, something special. So they were so trigger happy. They, they wouldn't allow anybody get even close, even look at us. Somebody look at us and they, they empty every place, whole lobby, stop the walkway in front of a huge intercontinental hotel and, and, uh, you know, getting there. And then finally from embassy, you're going to the airport. You know, the European cities park, sometimes stand still. You know what? They wouldn't, they wouldn't give. They wouldn't, they, they we kept moving. They were, they had the order to move. We kept moving. It didn't go in the regular way. They went into the, one-way street against the flow. When it stopped, they moved to the to the to the lawn and in the park. And we kept moving, kept moving. <laughs> we got to the airport and you know got to the plane to Amsterdam. But believe me, the the, the breath of relief came when uh, we took off from the Amsterdam. The whole you know Nordic brass was there with us. They got us a first class. You know it was it was a huge thing. So it wasn't business class. It was first class. CP Air was Canadian Pacific. No longer exists, but. Uh, and heading to Montreal, it was it was very special, but very real and very scary. A lot, a lot of things happened that uh, is really worth of a good novel, and that was in real life. Absolutely, it must have been terrifying. The only thing that could have made that story better is if the phone call was made to Sonny Werblin of the Rangers, but we won't go there. Um, <laughs> so, so you know. In every hockey market, there's always that talk about the first-round draft pick and that rookie season and such enormous pressure on them. You look at what you went through. 1980-81, you set a league rookie record, 70 assists, later tied by Joe Juneau of the Boston Bruins, 109 points, becoming the first rookie to have a 100-point season. You win the call the trophy as the league's top rookie. How are you able to block out what your parents were going through at home also, what Marion at that point, the first year when you defected, was going through at home and have such an amazing rookie year. Uh, I, I really don't know, but I can really sum it up that uh, I was determined to succeed. And it really helps when you on the one-way street. I couldn't go back home. I couldn't go anywhere. So I, had, I, I told my younger brother, we were two of us, and, and I remember one time Coach Benchim, he didn't want to play. I was so mad the first time I actually got up. Big, strong argument with the coach. I, I told him, I came here with my brother. I want to play with him. I know together we can help the team the, by far the most, better than when we separated. And then, you know, he put us together. was in Edmonton. We won the game 2-1. We, we both scored goal and assist each. So he maybe got the message right there. And, uh, and But uh, knowing, Mark, knowing that there is no return tickets, you have nowhere to go. So <laughs> I didn't want to go to minor. So I tried to play my best and, but mostly, it's a passion. I love the game. I was enough experienced. Uh, as, I, as I said, I got advantage to the other rookies because I played the world championship at a very, very high level. 
you know, our league wasn't as strong. We had like, you know, our longest trip was like a three hours by bus and you know, 40 minutes by plane. That was longer. So when we play, came to Canada and all of a sudden you fly like six hours and you got three time zones and, uh, you know, moving around, no days off and you got a lot of games and a lot of mileage, it takes toll. So, uh, there was a lot of things to adjust. There was some negative, but there were some positives and, and, and our will to succeed and, and possibility of like uh, going where, you know, you cannot go home when you get insulted or when you, something happens to you. No, you, you were there and, 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 and people in Quebec really, really made us a second home. They welcomed us with, with open arm from the, from the second we, we, we put the, you know, feet on the, on, on the, on the, on the Quebec land in, in the Quebec city when we landed from Montreal and, uh, and we felt it, uh, you know, for 10 years. So a lot, a lot of wonderful memories. You know, it's funny because you mentioned the travel as well as, you know, making sure that you played on a line with your brother. February 20th and February 22nd, maybe the two most amazing back-to-back games by brothers in the history of <laughs> any, any sport. February 20th, you and Anton each finished with the hat trick and three assists each during a 9-3 road win against the Vancouver Canucks. You then get on a plane, and you mentioned cross-country travel, and you head to Washington, D.C. to take on the Caps, an 11-7 win over the Washington Capitals. You have four goals, four assists. Anton has three goals and five assists. The two-game total set NHL record for most points by a player in consecutive games with 14. What are your memories of, of those two games? <laughs> That's exactly what I was saying. Like It was, it was the first season, a lot of unexpected, you know, very, very tough, very high-level Every game was tough. There was no weak opponent. You know, in our league, we used to come. There were a couple of teams tough. The other team, you knew you were going to win. You just, the question was by how many. There, the worst thing can beat you anytime. And it's still happening. The team is so, so, uh, at, at the parity, so competitive. And, and, you know, this, you know, this takes all, you, you get exhausted. But first time, we were in Vancouver before. But we were coming home gradually, playing Calgary, playing Winnipeg. But this time was our first trip going across the continent, playing in Vancouver, and next game was supposed to be in, in uh, Washington, D.C. You know, you know, three time zones and, uh, and no rest. It wasn't like a private jet like this, they're flying today. You fly commercially, it takes whole day, and next day you just, you know, make basically no time, or maybe a little skate in the morning and you play the game. And so the one thing is, you don't expect anything. You just, you know, hoping to survive, and when you have least expectation, good thing happens. That's usually happened to the drunk people, and that's why it happens sometimes. People go out and kind of get the steam out to, to clean their mind. There was nothing on our mind, no expectation, and everything was going in, especially after the game in, 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 uh, in, in Vancouver, when you ended up with uh, your hat-tricks and other three assists, like six points each. You, expect, you don't expect much. You just you know, play, enjoy. And I still remember, I think it was Mike Palmetier was in the net, and, and Washington was a terrible team at the time. But still, terrible teams, you, they beat us a you know, couple of weeks later, they came to Quebec. So, it, it's, as I said, there is no such a thing as, as a weak team. And, and it was just, everything was falling in, and, and believe me, it feels better, it's more memorable than my rookie season. You know, it was very, very special, particularly. We've done it like, you know, two games in a row, one across the continent, and you end up with 14 points with your brother, 28 points. Some people make a fortune having having this time for a, this amount of points for a whole season. 
you you're getting five six million you know, these these days. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, uh, yeah, that's basically the production of a fourth line for an entire NHL season. <laughs> so no, the, the, it, it, it really was it really was yeah. special and, and and very very memorable. And and the journalists and people remind me every time there is anniversary, there is always mm-hmm. some article somewhere and then some demand for interview and uh, kind of uh, you know commemorate with the hockey fans. So. It is special, and because it still stands as a, you know, it was like a, uh, like the young Swedish kid, you know, scoring six points within within few days against the same team. That's unbelievable. This is unbelievable. But we yeah. did something on we on top it. We put eight points in two games, and, and and flying across the continent on top of it, and and being then being declared. I didn't didn't know it was new. They declared two of us as a players of the weeks. So I was so happy and so proud, and I still remember when they announced it. There was a huge, huge standing ovation, like a sellout crowd in Quebec, and uh, they announced like we were nominated or, or named like a players of the week. And we got like those, you know, two, three, four minutes. They wouldn't stop, and I was like kind of red faced with my brother, and but it was very, very special. Yeah, it's funny because you mentioned Mika Zibanejad and having those two back-to-back games against the same team, but it, it, it totally pales in comparison, uh, a little different. Um, and I can imagine, the, the, you mentioned the pride of that. The next season, Marion also defects, comes here, and you guys put up 300 points as a line. What was that achievement, you know, playing with both your brothers and having such success? What did that mean to you? I don't know, but it had to be huge, huge relief, Mark. I have to tell you, uh, when my first season I actually was after the, the, the seasonal awards, I was somewhere in Montreal, and there was something following uh, with the player association or something in Las Vegas. I just remember it was a May or something after the season, uh, and I was in I was in Las Vegas or May June something. It was after the playoffs and everything. And I was in Las Vegas when I got the news that Marian is out in Vienna. Mark, that was the biggest, biggest piano falling off my shoulders because I felt very, very responsible. I knew, you know, they would they would take a revenge on on, on him, and that's what they did. They they suspended him. They didn't allow him to play hockey. He was he was followed by by KGB people and and everybody who, who approached him, everybody who shook his hand, was called for interrogation. And the result was that nobody, he lost all the friends, nobody. He was like isolated. It was a horrible, horrible year for him. So when he, when he got out, you know, he could come back, back to hockey. He still was, uh, wasn't too old. People losing the season, it happens. But what a relief. That relief was really like, it was inspiring. It was motivating. We had hard, uh, you know, like a summer preparation. We were ready for a season and I wasn't surprised. Marian played probably his best and uh, we played very well and, as I said, I, I appreciate it right now right, right more than I, I did before because there is no ever in the history, in the past, present, uh, maybe not even future. You cannot much talk about future. Having three brothers in the same line, having so much success, playing at the World Championship, at the Olympics, playing at the highest level at the NHL playoffs. The only thing we miss is probably uh, Olympic gold medal and maybe uh, Stanley Cup, but otherwise... There is no, there were more brothers, but never playing together and never accomplishing what we did. So this is my my proudest kind of a memory from from my career. You know, playing with the brothers and what you mentioned was exactly that. Our Marian's first season, our second season, uh, playing for Quebec and 
we had some great years. There was a team like Montreal Canadiens, the winningest team in the all at the time, all the professional franchises. We beat them more than they beat us, especially in the playoff. People in Quebec were so proud, so happy. So those were really the heydays and beautiful days uh, for all of us. And then some of the most beautiful memories for me and my brothers. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned what Marion was going through at home while you guys were here. Um, he was suspended from hockey in his homeland. Your father had his job and apartment taken away by the communist government because of your defection. You and your brothers became known as, at the time, non-persons. All your records were expunged. All your hockey feats <laughs> like they never happened. Um, and this was 41 years ago. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because this particular season, the Rangers superstar, Temi Panarin, actually had to take a leave of absence because of repercussions from a political hit job because of his opposition to the current regime in Russia. When you see what happened 41 years since you guys defected, what was the first thing that came through your mind when, when you read that story? Well, uh, believe me, uh, there is not too many hockey players who know the Russia, Russians and the history of Russia. I speak Russians. I've been there dozens and dozens and dozens of times. My son actually played for Red Army uh, uh, in, uh, in 2010-11, like 10 years ago, and... Uh, so I've been there many, many times. I, I know it's just, it's never good when politics get involved with the sports. And that's what kind of, that's what communists did. And, and Russia right now is not too far. These are the same people. Country is run by KGB. You know, Putin was a KGB, but it's still run the same way. They declare it's democratic, but, uh, Look at what they did, uh, you know, with this, all these Olympians. Why do you think Russians are still prohibited to compete at the Olympics everywhere? Because it's a Russian-sponsored, politically motivated uh, kind of manipulation. And that's exactly what happened to Panarin. I, I, I could not believe somebody comes with it was intentionally done because he was gutsy enough uh, not to agree with Putin. And that's, to me, that, that, that's unacceptable and world has to stand up and world has to kind of uh, be known what's happening and, and do something about it. This is, uh, everybody deserves kind of more freedom and more rights than, than uh, you know, some Russians, a lot of Russians are exper experiencing right now. You, you mentioned the only thing, you know, missing on your resume is that Stanley Cup championship and a gold medal. Um, twice you made it to the conference finals, losing to the Islanders in 82, Flyers in 85. Your son Paul has been to the conference finals three times. Which was tougher, watching Paul's team lose in a conference final or you losing in a conference final? No, it's, it, it's, it's Paul. It's, believe me, when you're out there, it's the same thing. And when I was at the Olympics and watching him live, even today, that's a lot harder. It's so much easier when you're out there and you you the actor and you know, you part of it. Uh, so much easier, and uh, you know, and especially right now, I just have a hope because I would value a lot, lot more than me when Paul wins, and he's he's out there to save the family reputation, family dynasty, <laughs> dynasty right now. So I'm very happy, and cheering him on for his thousand games because he already recently passed me in number of games, and if he gets healthy. You know, next to the last, uh, you know, just came before the last game of the season. He should be, he should be having his uh, 1,000 game. He gets there either, you know, either this season or next season if he gets a minor injury. But he gets there, and that's a very, very special milestone. And and he still has an open door 
to go out there and attack and, and hopefully achieve more than, than his daddy uh, accomplished uh, in, in the terms of uh, Stanley Cup, bringing Stanley Cup home. He is not exactly the youngest, but he still has a lot, a lot in him. You know, he's very, very smart. He's productive, and uh, and uh, he's right now in you know very good team. So you know, you just need to get hot at the, at the you know right time. Usually, when you know playoff starts, and and you can run it for you know a few weeks and uh, and um, come home with the with the Stanley Cup. So I think Winnipeg Jets uh, are are you know very competitive right now. They do have a good squad and uh, they do have a good chance so it's 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 never rocking it's tough way tougher as i said than when i played but uh, i'm i'm his biggest fan and he can still you know accomplish what i did you know your impact on the game goes well beyond what you accomplish on the ice uh, your offensive dominance with you and your brothers paved the way for many european players from both sides of the iron curtain including Yari Curry, Mats Naslund, Thomas Steen in the 80s. You inspired a wave of young Czech and Slovak players to defect. Miroslav Fritscher, Peter Klima, Peter Savoda, David Volek, Peter Nedved. Unbelievably enough, 10 years after you defected, Jaromir Jager, one of my favorite players of all time, was the first Czechoslovakian player to be drafted in the NHL without first having to defect. Currently, there are 32 Czech players in the NHL, two of them right here with the New York Rangers and Philip Hedl and, and Libor Hedl. Of course, there are stars around the league as, as well. Jacob Voracek, David Krejci, David Pasternak, just to name a few. How much pride do you take in the fact that all of those names that I just mentioned would never have graced the NHL had it not been for what you and your brothers did? Oh, no, no. no. Maybe I play some, some small minor role, but believe me, this is the evolution. It would come uh, with me or without me. And uh, I'm just proud and happy that so many more, so many more hundreds of millions of more people enjoying more freedom and, 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 and enjoying the, the opportunities that we didn't have. And to me, I look at the NHL. I mean, that was the best ever, but we could even dream because it was impossible. It's like, uh, you know, in the, the, the old days, you know, getting through the Chinese world, you, know, you cannot get there. There is no way. Uh, and it, there were those two walls, two superpowers, nuclear superpowers. They were never supposed to meet. They were always against each other. And, and we had, uh, we had, uh, you know, barbed wire, you know, fans around the country. And you tried to approach and to leave, they would shoot you. Uh, it, it, it was horrible. So I'm just happy that all these players, all these athletes have these opportunities, uh, in different sport too, tennis and, and many other sports, basketball. Uh, you know, soccer, you know, they, they going out freely and they got the opportunities to improve their lives and to show their talent and, and then, then bring the pride to their country as we did. And, uh, I was very, very happy. Believe me, what I didn't accomplish or, or what I accomplished as a general manager, you know, bring small Slovakia, you know, bring them to the, to the title of a world championship ever. You cannot imagine what it does with the country. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a different thing. And it would never happen if we would still be in the communist country. There would be no Slovakia, there would be no freedom, no opportunities, and there would be, like you said, maybe few. Because I had my idols, my Stan Mikita was my idol, he, he was there legally. But I got people like Nedomansky, who was recently inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame, who escaped like, a, you know, six years before me, 1974. And he was from my hometown, he played for Slovan Bratislava, and... Uh, uh, I looked up to him, and, and I, I cherish very much uh, his friendship and, and, and his accomplishment. And I, I'm his, one of his biggest fans. 
but he was the trace you know, like a like a trailblazer for me and uh, for my generation and I was just happy and glad to to show that you know we can do it uh, people from even a small country like Slovakia can generate a lot of inspiration and 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 conviction yeah we can compete with the best and we can go after our dreams no matter what and we can accomplish something and uh, succeed in, in such a league as the NHL and uh, we had like some great hockey players, Peter Bondra, Pavel Demitrov, um, uh, Marian Hossa, and uh, you know Zygmunt Palfi. There were some some exceptional talent there, Gaborik, and uh, you know there, there were the days where you know you look at top ten, top fifteen uh, most productive players. You had three, four Slovaks there. So it was just very special. Lastly, the Hockey News ranked you as number fifty-six of the hundred greatest NHL players of all time. You're inducted into the National Hockey Hall of Fame in 1988 and the International Ice Hockey Federation of Hall of Fame in 2000. What do those achievements mean to you? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no I'm, I'm extremely proud. But uh, just, uh, just, just, just to correct, or to, you need to look at it a little differently. I, I told my son, and uh, you know, I played seven seasons of elite hockey in Europe, so I, it's very hard to compare me with some others when I, I you know, I'm the only one out there with less than 1,000 games. I mean, like a 900 and whatever, 70-something, seven. I, I know because the Paul just passed me. And uh, But uh, it is extremely, extremely difficult. It is a huge accomplishment, and that's why I'm so proud of my son, both of my son, but Paul particularly because he just passed me. And to play 1,000 games and to, to, to accomplish this, it requires tremendous amount of of the talent and, and the will and then consistency and contribution to your team at the same time while you're having extreme fun because you're doing what you love, what you're passionate about, what you grew up and spend your free time freely playing hours and hours daily because you just love the hockey game and it becomes later on your job and you, you, you able to really be useful and then and, uh, produce for your team, for your city, for your region, and your province or state or country, and uh, and you know once you get into hockey hall of fame or you you get a part of the, the, those record books, it really makes it almost like you know like immortal. And I I, I don't know what can be uh, more kind of a desired and then you know. You know, like recently they built a beautiful kind of statue of the three Stasny brothers in Quebec. Usually you do that for people who are dead. So <laughs> they're building the statues for live people. That means you have to touch those lives of those people there. And they, this is the greatest way to, to feel that you did something useful, something that improved and, and made the people prouder. And, and, and more special, same people who share the passion with you, ice hockey. So it, it, is, Mark, it, it is really, really special. Peter, thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, I can't even believe I'm saying this. Uh, thank you for allowing me to see 30 seasons uh, of Stasny hockey in the NHL. I've, I've witnessed <laughs> both you and your son's careers. Um, and just both of you exhibit so much excellence in everything you guys do. Um, just thanks so much for being with us tonight. You're very welcome, Mark, and all the best to you and all those radio hockey fans. Peter the Great, 1998 Hockey Hall of Fame inductee.